Today's scripture reading is from John chapter 14, verses 15 to 27. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it, he, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I live with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you. Thanks be to God. Uh, would you please join me in prayer? Let's pray. And Father, now as we have heard your word, we ask that you would now speak to your people. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God who is not far off even though you are transcendent, but you are God who is near. Father, bless us now as we kick off this new year, as we look forward to what is to come, and as we begin afresh, anew, in the hopes that the things that is to come, that are to come this year, will be filled with much thanksgiving, much growth, much development, much hope. Father, we know that you are a God of hope. You are God of joy, and you call your people to embody that hope and that joy in light of the great work that you've done through your son, Jesus. And so, God, do that now in this message. We pray that you would bless it abundantly in spite of the messenger who gives it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, folks, happy new year. Happy new year, right? Happy new year, everyone. Hope you had a wonderful New Year's weekend celebrating with friends and family, getting reacquainted, just really making a new commitment in light of 2016. This is 2016, which means this is the first Sunday of 2016, which also means we are beginning our annual sermon series that we do at the beginning of every new year entitled Grow Up, which is basically short for Grow Up in the gospel. And the reason why we do this series at the beginning of every new year is because our firm conviction is that a church, every church, and especially this church, has a mission. And that mission is to what? Bless the world. We firmly believe that God has called the church to be a blessing to the world. William Temple, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, which is the leader of the Church of England, captured this idea powerfully when he once said these words, quote, the church is the only society that exists for the benefits of those who are not its members. The church is the only society that exists on earth for the benefits of those who are not its members. This is what we at NCF firmly believe. We believe this is the mission 
of our church and therefore the mission of every church who claims the hope of Jesus. And one of the things that we have to remember when it comes to living out this mission is that the way that we can do this effectively is when the people who live in the church, people who make up the church, are maturing in their faith, or the way that we say it around here as growing up in the gospel. We believe that the best and only way to which we can be a blessing to the world is when you, the members of the church, are maturing, growing up in faith, in spiritual maturity, in your understanding of the gospel. Because when we grow up in the gospel, we become more like Jesus. And the more like Jesus we become, the more we can show the world who Jesus is like. And the more the world sees who Jesus is like, the more they will finally understand that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. In other words, that Jesus is who he says he is. That he is the hope of the world. So with that in mind, we kick off this series by looking at the first characteristic or the first attribute that God's people should exhibit as they grow in the gospel. And that characteristic is known as godliness, being a godly person. I want to talk to you today about what it means to be godly. Now, here's the thing. If you read the Bible, you will find many different understandings, many different meanings, nuances of what it means to be godly. But here in our passage today, Jesus is going to show us that one aspect of what it means to be godly is in the context of obedience, Jesus is going to show us that if you want to be a godly person, you have to be an obedient person. You have to be a person who is living out in obedience, someone who obeys God, okay? So with that framework set up, three things I want to share with you today as it pertains to obedience. First, I want to talk about the gift of obedience, the gift of obedience. Second, I want to talk about the helper of obedience, And then finally, I want to end it with the receiving of obedience, the gift of obedience, the helper of obedience, and finally, the receiving of obedience. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the gift of obedience. Let's read again verse 15 of our passage where Jesus says this to his disciples. He says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. Now, when you first read this statement, It is possible that you can misunderstand what Jesus is saying to where you can almost be offended by what he is saying here. In other words, you can take what Jesus is saying here in verse 15 and interpret it in such a way to where it sounds like he's being a little manipulative here. Let me explain with a personal example. Um, Every now and then, my wife, Sarah, will come up to me out of the blue without any provocation on my part, and she'll just say to me with this beautiful smile of hers, she says, babe, I love you. You know, out of the blue, without anything, like me doing anything, not making breakfast, not waking the kids up or anything, like she'll just come up, babe, I just want you to know, I, I adore you, I love you. And, and when she says that, I just melt, I'm like, oh, I'm the greatest man in the world right now. You know, I feel like I'm on top of the world. But every now and then, she'll also come up to me without any provocation on my end. She'll say, babe, do you love me? She'll say it just like that. It's like, babe, do you love me? Scrunching up her nose like that. And I know exactly what she is asking at that moment. And it's not whether or not I love her. She's wanting something from me, right? She's asking for a favor, presumably something that I don't want to do, which is why she has to remind me that I love her in question form, right? In other words, for lack of a better word, Sarah is using my love as leverage to get me to do something that I would prefer not to do. Now, To be fair, I do this more to her than she does to me. But you know what? It's not about me, okay? It's not about me. I'm not here to talk about myself, right? Here's the thing, though. 
It's very easy to interpret Jesus' words in verse 15 the same way to where when you read Jesus saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, what you think he's really saying is, guys, if you really love me, then you better obey me, right? What's wrong with interpreting Jesus' words that way? Two problems with that. First of all, it makes Jesus no different to me and Sarah, or to anyone else, right? It just sounds like Jesus is being a little manipulative, that he's using our love as leverage to get us to do something that he wants rather than what we want. It doesn't really paint Jesus in a very positive, mature light. But the second problem, and this is more troubling, is that when you understand Jesus' words as I'm describing it here, it almost makes it sound like as if obedience is something that we would prefer not to do. That it's kind of like a chore that we do more out of obligation because of our love for Jesus. It's, it's, it's more like taking out the trash or doing the dishes or, or, or changing the children's diaper. You know, you don't really want to do it. You don't take delight in doing it. But, you know, you love your spouse and you just do it because, hey, it's just part of the duty. It's just part of the grueling responsibility of being in a relationship. Here's the problem with that understanding. When you read how the Bible understands obedience, it does not understand obedience as a grueling duty that you just tolerate simply because out of love for the person you're in a relationship with. For example, consider King David. If you read the Psalms, he's constantly talking about his desire to obey God. When you look at how David describes obedience to the Lord, it's incredibly different than that understanding. For example, Psalm 119 This is what he says in regards to his obedience to God. This is starting in verse 97. Oh, how I love your instructions. I think about them all day long. Your commands make me wiser than my enemies, for they are my constant guide. Yes, I have more insight than my teachers, for I'm always thinking of your laws. I'm even wiser than my elders, for I've kept your commandments. I refuse to walk on any evil path so that I may remain obedient to your word. I haven't turned away from your regulations, for you have taught me well. How sweet your words taste to me. They are sweeter than honey. Your commandments give me understanding. No wonder I hate every false way of life. The Bible makes it clear. Obedience is not some grueling duty that you just have to put up with out of love for someone or out of love for God. No, obedience is something that you should find a thrill in doing. It's something that you should take delight in doing. It's not a chore. It's something that you find precious, find important, something that you find dignifying in your relationship to God. So with that in mind, the question is, how then are we to understand Jesus' words in verse 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What is Jesus actually saying? Well, in order to understand what he's really saying, you have to know the context in which he's speaking these words. Jesus spoke these words right before he was arrested, which ultimately led to his violent, humiliating death on the cross. In fact, earlier on in the previous chapter, he informs his disciples that he's ready to bounce, that he has to leave them, that he's going to leave this world and leave them behind because he has to go to the cross. He's going to the Father, and the path that he's going, they cannot follow. Now, imagine for a moment if you're one of the original 12, if you're one of the original disciples, Think of how traumatic these words must have been to them as they're hearing it coming out of Jesus' mouth. These men are completely devoted to God. They've been following Jesus for three and a half years. They love this man. They're devoted to this man. They're loyal to this man. And they've seen this man do incredible things that they've seen no other human being ever do before. Feeding the poor. Healing blind eyes so that they see. 
raising dead people back to life, starting a movement of hope in a time where everyone was so hopeless to where this movement was gaining momentum. And just when it seems like they were on top, Jesus says, guys, I'm pulling the plug. I'm out of here. I got to get out. I'm leaving this world, and I'm leaving you in it. Can you imagine how stressful, how anxious, how fearful these men must have been, especially knowing that they are going to be disconnected to a man they utterly love, are utterly devoted to, and want to spend the rest of their life with, right? They are filled with such angst, and to top it all off, it gets worse. Because by this time in the story of Jesus in his life ministry, it seemed like the whole world hated him and hated his disciples. By the end of Jesus' public ministry, he had a lot of haters. Politicians, religious leaders, even common everyday folk, even former disciples wanted nothing to do with him. They were filled with such animosity. And just when it seemed all this collaborative hatred was at its peak, he says, guys, I'm leaving this world that hates me so much, which also means you're staying behind. How would you feel if you were his disciples at that moment? I tell you how you feel. You would feel hurt. You would feel abandoned. You would feel like orphans. Jesus, knowing this, tries to assure his disciples with these words in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the context in which Jesus speaks those famous words. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's the context where the disciples are going to have to face living in a world that is very much against Jesus and as a result, very much against them because they've been following Jesus all these years. And the inevitable question that they are wrestling with at this moment is no doubt this one. How do I know that I will still be connected to Jesus when, first of all, he's not even around? He's physically gone. And not only that, I'm living in a world that hates him and therefore hates me and is pressuring me to hate him the way it hates him. What can I look to as evidence that Jesus and I are still connected to one another, that our bond of love hasn't been severed as I'm living in a hostile world in his absence? And it's to this question Jesus responds in verse 15. The way you know that we're still connected, the way you know that we have not been severed apart is through obedience. Obedience. According to Jesus... Obedience is not a grueling duty that you have to do in order to prove to Jesus that you love him. Rather, obedience is a vital sign that proves God is still with you. He's still connected to you, even though he's not physically present, even though you live in a world that is pressuring, tempting, coercing, even threatening you to hate him the way it hates him. Think of it this way. Imagine you're in a beautiful garden, and as you look in the garden... You see trees beautifully and strategically planted. You see flowers that are beautifully color-coordinated in such a way that it shows design. When you're walking in that garden, what does that garden show? It shows the evidence of the active presence of a gardener, right? Jesus would say obedience that is manifested in a Christian, when a Christian is manifesting obedience like he is faithful sexually, he's living a life of obedience, he's living rightly, that's evidence of God's active presence in his life. Even though Jesus is not physically present in his life, even though he lives in a world that is filled with such hatred and such animosity. 
Okay? This is something that I want you guys to really understand, especially for those of you who grew up in the church. Because for many of you, you were incorrectly taught that obedience is the grueling duty that we have to push ourselves to do as a way of exhibiting our love for God. That we see our obedience, as painful as it can be, as our offering to God. It's our gift to God. Jesus is saying, no, it's the other way around. Your obedience that manifests in your life is actually God's gift to you. God is giving you the gift of obedience. He's showing you that through your obedience, he is in your life. He's living in your life. He is active in your life. He is with you. He has not left you as orphans having to fend for yourself in this God-hating world. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're scratching your heads. You're thinking, how, how is this possible? Because when I'm obeying, I'm the one obeying, right? I'm putting in the effort. I'm straining to live a life of holiness. I'm trying to live a righteous life. I'm making the internal sacrifices. I'm denying myself. I'm the one doing all the work of obedience. So how can you say, Pastor... That obedience is actually God's gift to me when I'm the one doing all of this work and effort behind it. Great question. Leads me to my next point, the helper of obedience. Let's read again verse 16 to 20 of our passage. Jesus says this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Now, if you're here investigating Christianity and this is your first time reading the Bible and hearing the words of Jesus, you're probably thinking, man, why does Jesus sound like a new age guru here, right? Because he's mentioning all this, like, oh, you are in me. I am in you. The Father is in us. You know, it just sounds like this weird, silly new age mysticism or something. But if you actually studied his words carefully, you would know that Jesus is not being silly and he's not being new agey whatsoever. In fact, Jesus is saying something so profound and so important. And it all centers on this person Jesus referenced in verse 17 as what? The spirit of the truth. Who is the spirit of truth? Well, skip down to verse 26. Jesus tells us it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Now, generally speaking, for most Christians, the Holy Spirit is very obscure to them. Okay? And what I mean by that is when Christians think of the Holy Spirit, they think of some sort of impersonal power or force that you can use like a tool to do supernatural things, right? The Holy Spirit, I speak in tongues, right? Or I have the Spirit and I can heal you, you know, and make you fall down on your face. Like, yeah, you know? Or they see the Holy Spirit as kind of like saying, oh, the Spirit, I can prophesy in the Spirit that you're going to have to go to the bathroom in 10 minutes. The Bible has a much different and more non, not as foolish sounding understanding of the spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? What is the Holy Spirit? Listen to how one theologian by the name of Clyde Cranford uh, explains it. He says this, quote, the Holy Spirit is a person. Indeed, he is the third person of the Trinity and his very real presence within us is the most personal aspect of intimacy with God. Yet today it seems that he is thought of more as a power or force than an actual sentient being. 
People use words like it and what and that when speaking of him. Listen, the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force that you can manipulate like you're Luke Skywalker or something, okay? The Spirit is not this, this nebulous force that's out there in the galaxy that you can just harness and do crazy things. No, the Holy Spirit is God. In fact, he is part of the triune God made up of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, if you don't understand that, it's okay. In fact, that's a good thing because nobody understands the nature of God in this triuneness. Okay? In fact, it's actually bad when you think you understand the triune nature of God. Because if you think you understand the triune nature of God, that means you're a heretic and you're wrong. Okay? Nobody understands the nature of God because how could you? He's God. You know, have you ever had someone insult you by saying, man, I know you like the back of my hand. Right? What do you, what, what's your normal reaction? You don't know me, right? Isn't that what we say? Like, no, I know you. Oh, yeah, I know everything about you. And you just feel insulted because they're basically saying, I'm above you. You're so shallow. You're so easy and simple to to comprehend that I can, I, I know you better than you know yourself. For a person to say, oh, yes, I know exactly how God is both three and one, how he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he's one God. I, I got it figured out. You know what you're saying when you say that? You're saying, God, I know you like the back of my hand. You're so easy to figure out. You're not complex. You're not a deep person. You're so shallow. You're so superficial. You're so easy to figure out. No one can understand the nature of God. No one can understand his fullness. But with that said, however, that doesn't mean we can't know anything about God or specifically anything about the Holy Spirit. Because here in our passage, Jesus tells us something very true and specific about the Holy Spirit. What does he call the Holy Spirit in our passage? Verse 16. What does he give him? What title does he give him? Helper. Right? Jesus calls the Holy Spirit a helper. That is so, so interesting. Very, very interesting. You're thinking, why is that so interesting? Because that word helper is an echo of another kind of person that goes by that same title. Do you know where you see that word before? Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 2. Follow along. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he said, he had made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. For those of you who don't recognize this story, this is a story of the very first marriage that ever existed between the very first two human beings, Adam and Eve. And notice how God refers to Adam's spouse. What does he call her? Helper. Helper. And yet Jesus, in our passage, refers to the Holy Spirit as helper. Isn't that interesting? Why does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit with the same terminology of a married person's spouse? Or for you single people out there, why does he refer to the Holy Spirit as the one? You guys know the one, that person that you hope is out there that you might bump into on the subway, you know, the one, right? Why does Jesus refer to the Holy Spirit in this kind of manner as if it's referring to a human spouse? Well, I want to read to you a quote from Pastor Tim Keller over at Redeemer. This is from his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says this, quote, within this Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love. 
It is to look to at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you, and it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey that you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got a glimpse of it on earth, but now look at you. According to Keller, your spouse is supposed to help you become the person that God has summoned you to be in Christ. The whole, excuse me, the spouse, your human spouse is supposed to be the one who draws out the best that God has called you to be by the power of his grace. That's why your spouse is referred to as helper, right? And in essence, that is what the Holy Spirit does. He is like our earthly spouse. He enables us to become the person that God has decreed for us to be before the foundation of the world, which is to be like Jesus Christ. Here's one critical difference, however. Unlike our earthly spouse who is just with us, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is not just with you like your earthly spouse. Oh, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is also in you. Listen to what he says in verse 17. You know him, the Holy Spirit, for he dwells with you. And what else? He will be in you. In you. The Holy Spirit is not just by your side like a faithful spouse. No, the Holy Spirit is a little bit different. He actually resides inside of you. And it's because the Spirit of God dwells within you, you are able to live out a life of obedience. How? Let me explain. Do you guys know what the number one reason for divorce in America is? The number one reason for divorce in America is what? Irreconcilable differences. That is the number one reason in America today why people divorce. And what is irreconcilable difference? Irreconcilable difference is when a person feels that their spouse doesn't get them. They don't get their spouse. Their spouse doesn't understand them. They don't understand their spouse. And basically this person whom they thought was the one, remember, the one, someone who could get them, someone who could understand them, someone who could help them understand themselves is really a complete stranger. In my previous church in Seattle, there was a woman who came to our church, recovering Christian, got divorced, regretted the divorce, tried to get back with her husband. He wouldn't take her back because she had multiple affairs. And she was grieving because she knows she made a mistake. And I, I just asked her one time, I was like, well, what were you thinking when you were considering separating from your husband? This is what she said. You know, I had this lingering and haunting emptiness that just kept growing and growing the longer I was with my husband to where I felt like I was wasting my life, to where I was missing out on life. And it got worse when I was convinced that my husband didn't get me and I didn't get him. And this man who I thought was my other half felt like a complete stranger. That's when I left. That's when I abandoned ship. Because I was filled with uncertainty that the spouse that I married was not the one. That's what she said. The person I was supposed to be with. And so I left. You know what's so interesting? What's so interesting is that a lot of people today, a lot of Christians, describe their relationship with God in almost the exact same way. I've counseled many people in their journey of faith. And the way they describe their relationship with God is very similar to how people describe their ex whom they divorce over irreconcilable difference. They say things like, you know, pastor, me and God, we just kind of grew apart. 
I mean, there just came a point in my life to where the things that I was reading in the Bible, the things that were important to God, it just didn't resonate with me. You know, and I had kind of like this internal itch inside of me that, that God didn't seem to really be able to scratch. And it just seemed like I didn't get him. He didn't get me. And he became nothing more than a familiar stranger. Here's the thing, folks. God knows that this is something many of us could struggle with and do struggle with. Maybe you're struggling with it now. If you are, I have good news for you. The Holy Spirit lives in you. One of the reasons why we need the Spirit to live within us is because as He lives in us, do you know what He's doing as He's living in us? He's eradicating all uncertainty, all doubt, all fear of missing out that we're tempted to feel as we commit ourselves to God living in a world that hates Him so much. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 8. He says this, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on our behalf according to God's will. It turns out people don't feel irreconcilable difference only with their spouse or only with God, but according to this passage, Paul tells us it's possible to feel irreconcilable difference with yourself. It's possible to where you feel like you thought you knew yourself, you thought you were a certain kind of person, but then life happens and you realize, I'm not the person that I thought I was. And I cannot put together, I cannot reconcile the fact that what I envision myself to be is not who I really am. And all of a sudden, you feel like you're going through an inner existential divorce, for lack of a better phrase. You feel like you are your own Stranger, you are alienated to yourself. People feel irreconcilable differences so much so that when they try to pray, they don't know what to pray. They don't know what's bothering them. They don't get themselves. You know, kind of like the proverbial husband who's trying to get his spouse who wants to leave. Honey, tell me, what what can I do to understand you? She's like, you can't. You know, there are times where we feel that way as it's evidence in the fact that when we try to pray, we're like, what do I want? What do I need to pray for? You just can't. And yet, what does Paul say when you feel so lost in yourself and you feel so alienated for yourself? He says, the Spirit knows what to pray. He knows exactly what to pray. He knows exactly that is what is bothering you, what is wrong with you, even when you don't know it yourself. He knows that indescribable itch you have in your soul. He knows that nebulous problem that you can't figure out what it is, but you just feel it and it's in there. He knows all the psychological white noise that's going on inside of you with crystal clarity. Or as Paul refers to it as, inexpressible groanings. You see, one of the main responsibilities of the Holy Spirit's ministry in your life as he lives in you is to help you understand yourself, to familiarize yourself, to get you acquainted with yourself, to get you intimate with yourself, to give you a sense of self-knowledge that you will never acquire on your own, no matter how much self-reflection, no matter how much self-psychology, no matter how much journaling you do. The Spirit of God lives in you to teach you about God, to teach you about the world, to teach you about you. That is what the Spirit does, which is why Jesus says you have peace. Not peace that the world can give you because the world, which you are a part of, cannot give you this peace. But he can give you that peace. A peace to where you say, I now know who I am. 
And here's the thing, folks. As you experience this growing intimate knowledge about yourself through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, all of that irreconcilable difference that you thought was there between you and God gradually goes away because the more you realize he gets you better than you know yourself, it starts dawning on you. Wait a minute. Maybe he really is the one. Maybe he really does get me. And all of a sudden, it's growing confidence, growing trust that is manifested in your willingness to say, I'm going to obey you. I'm going to trust you through obedience. This is what Jesus means when he says, if you love me, you will obey me. Jesus is assuming the work of the Holy Spirit here when he says these words. The work where the Spirit shows how much he does know you so that you can grow in confidence that he is the one. He is the ultimate helper. He is the ultimate spouse. He is the love of your life. To where you're willing to forsake everything and everyone in this world in order to stay with him and in order to have him forever. Manifested in your obedient life. That's genuine obedience. And you can only have it when the spirit of God is dwelling with inside of you and helping you understand yourself. Growing your confidence to where you're willing to trust him as it's evidenced by your willingness to obey him more and more, becoming more and more righteous, becoming more and more holy. Here's the question. How does that happen? How do you get the Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you so that you can receive this gift of obedience? Great question. Leads me to my final point, the receiving of obedience. Let's read verse 26 to 27 of our passage. But the helper, the Holy Spirit... Whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. I leave with the Holy Spirit. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Here Jesus tells us how we can receive the Holy Spirit. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, how we can receive the gift of obedience. What does he say? Verse 26. The Father will send the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. What is he talking about? What does it mean for the Father to send the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus? What does that in the name of Jesus mean? You know, back in the days, I don't know, I don't know if it actually happened, but whenever I watch old cop shows from like the 1700s, you know, England, Scotland Yard, you know, you always see the constable chasing after a criminal and he says something like, stop in the name of the law, you know. Like, that's really going to stop a criminal. But I guess people back then had a little bit more of a sensitive conscience, like, oh, you're right, I should stop. But apparently cops said that to criminals. Right? What are they saying to the criminal? Stop in the name of the law. What are they saying? In the name of the law. In the authority of the law, I command you to stop. Right? That's the same idea here. When Jesus says that the Father is going to send the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus, what he's really saying, the Father under the authority of his son, Jesus, will give you the Holy Spirit. Now you're thinking, wait, does that sound right? My Asian, you know, filial piety sensibilities does not sound, that doesn't sound right. How can the father, under the authority of his son, send, he's the father. Doesn't he have more authority than the son? Why does he need the son to be authorized to give the spirit, right? That makes no sense. Does that make sense to you? Well, good point. To explain, let me read to you Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Here Jesus states 
that he was given an authority after he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. An authority, presumably, he did not have before he died on the cross, right? That's what given authority assumes, right? When you're given authority, that means you did not have this authority prior. That's why it had to be given to you. Now, you hear that, like, wait a minute, that, this sounds weird because Jesus is God. He's God the Son. And because he's God, doesn't he already have all authority? How can the Bible say that he's been given authority? He already has all authority, right? Can't he do whatever he wants? Well, yes and no. Yes, Jesus is God. And he does have authority to do whatever he wants. Unless, of course, it goes against his nature. For example, God is holy. You and I and every other person that walks on the earth, we are sinners. And because he is holy... He cannot just give us the Holy Spirit to sinners like us because we don't deserve it. And second of all, it would compromise his holiness. God, as a holy God, does not interact with sinners because, first of all, his holiness would kill us. And second of all, it would taint his holiness. How can God, the Father, give us the Spirit when his own holiness forbids him to do that? The answer, the gospel the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God became a human being. He became Jesus. He lived the perfect life we should have lived but didn't. And he died the humiliating, condemning death that we should have died but won't. Why? Because he came to be our substitute to where he paid for all of our sins, past, present, future, to where his blood, his death, covers over and pays for and fully redeems all of the condemnation and wrath that you deserve. It was all poured on Jesus so that when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he doesn't see you as a sinner. He sees you as what? A saint. He sees you as holy. He sees you as someone who is in Christ and therefore someone who deserves in Christ the Holy Spirit. It is when God covers us in the gospel. It is when our sins have been fully paid for that God is now authorized to give us his holiness, his Holy Spirit, without compromising his holiness because he's not. Because he's giving the spirit to those who have already been set apart, those who have already been made holy through the blood of Jesus. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says this in John 16. Listen to what he says. But now I am going to him, the Father who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. (coughs) Excuse me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Could Jesus, as he was walking on this earth, not send the helper down? Well, according to what he says here, no. He has to first go to the Father in order to bring the helper down. How does he get to the Father? He gets to the Father through the road of Calvary. He walks the solitary, lonely, humiliating path of condemnation and death as he carried the cross, bearing your sins, bearing my sins, to where he substituted himself for us. So that when we put our faith and trust in him, we become holy. We become holy in Jesus. And as he rises again from the dead, he goes to the Father. What does he say? Father, 
in light of the cross, in light of my resurrection, that shows that I've been justified through my perfect righteousness, I am now authorized. You are now authorized to send the Spirit to dwell in your people. And he dwells within us. If you put your faith in him, he dwells within you. And he changes you. He helps you understand yourself. You become more confident that God is who he says he is, that he is the one. He is the ultimate helper. He is the ultimate spouse. He is the one that you're willing to forsake everything and everyone in this world in order to have him. To where your obedience is proof of that willingness. Through that loyalty. Obedience is not an effort that originates in you to where you can take credit in saying... Oh, you love me, God, because I make the effort. I do the work. I am righteous on my own power. No. Obedience is a sign that the Spirit of God is living in you. It is a sign that you are understanding God, the world, and yourself in such a way that you are confident that he is who he is in spite of the fact the world is telling you he isn't who he says he is, and therefore you should hate him or reject him or dismiss him like the rest of the world does. Jesus is not physically here, but he's with us in his spirit. This world hates him, but you love him because he first loves you, given the fact that he lives in you. I hope And I do not want to see any of you guys saying, I'm a righteous person because I go to church, I read my Bible, I get up and do morning prayer, and I go on mission trips, and I don't look at porn, I don't get drunk on the weekends, I don't sleep around, I make straight A's, I do all this, I do all that, I do all this on my power, by self-discipline, I'm so humble, I'm an obedient person, I'm such a godly person. Obedience is only possible because the Spirit of God lives in you. Not because you are proving yourself to God. God is proving himself to you that he has not left you, he's not abandoned you, and he's forever with you. So here's my question to you. Some of you guys call yourselves Christians. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. My question is, look at your obedience. Is there areas in your life where you know that you are not living right, where you should be living right? All of us. How are you posturing yourself towards that? Are you thinking, I just need to try harder. I just need to get in an accountability group. I just need to read more books. I just need to just do harder, be better. Or are you thinking, um, you know, this obedience thing, It's not that big of a deal. Jesus loves me anyway. I'm covered by the blood. The gospel says I'm forgiven. So I can pretty much out-sin God's grace. No matter how much I sin, God's going to forgive me anyway. Those are two errors that we see in the church today. We have the problem of legalism and we have the problem of people who abuse grace. And they both have a wrong understanding of what obedience is. Okay? Obedience is not something that determines God's love for you. And obedience is not a frivolous thing to where it doesn't matter because the gospel is so powerful. No, the gospel is so powerful because the spirit lives in you 
to where he manifests an obedient life. Are you living an obedient life? Are you living in the spirit? And if you're not, the answer is don't obey more. The answer is believe the gospel. Believe what Jesus has done for you. Because if you do, the spirit will be in you and he will work in you. And you will become more godly and more obedient for the good of the world. Let's pray. Father, as we think more about what it means to live a life of obedience, God, correct a lot of our frivolous and misunderstandings of what it means to be an obedient child of God. For many of us, we have made it to become a competition with those around us to where we leverage ourselves in judgment against our brothers and sisters. For others of us, we dismiss it as calling it nothing more than a pietistic legalism that we look down on. To where we abuse grace. Father, forgive us of both errors. And help us to see what obedience is. It is your gift to us. It is evidence that you have not abandoned us. It is, your, it, is, it is proof. It is the vital sign that even though you're not physically here. And even though we live in a hostile world that is against you. You're with us. And you love us. And we love you. Help us to live this out faithfully. Especially as we begin this new year. Father, let this year begin and let it end with us growing in obedience to you. Not through our efforts, not through our own self-discipline, but only through dependence upon your Holy Spirit, our great helper, the great lover of our soul, the one to whom we look to for faith and for purity and for holiness. Holy Spirit, Make us into more obedient people. Not because we find more significance in our obedience, but because it shows that you are indeed our great helper. You are our ultimate spouse who will get us to the destination that the Father has called us to get to. Help us to live that out each day. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.